0: I've entitled our message, Destiny Missed. History is built on events and the people that influence those events, that is history. People have to show up. If they don't, either somebody else is gonna take their place and perhaps invent or do what they were intended to do, or possibly, in worst case scenarios, the course of history is altered altogether. Because the course of the future is not inevitable. The future is inevitable. It's going to happen, but its course is not inevitable. What happens has a lot to do with the people that show up and what they do. What if the inventor of the compass, that obviously had a lot to do with navigation around the world, the spread of humanity, what if the inventor of the compass decided, the stars are a good enough navigation system, and I'm just going to go fishing instead? The world would not be the same. What if Gutenberg, who invented the printing press, didn't want to put the writers and copiers union out of business? Nobody really needs books, reading is really an optional skill anyway, and he decides not to invent the printing press. What if Alexander Graham Bell decided not to finish the telephone? Maybe he doesn't want his wife talking to her mother every day. Thank you for laughing at that, though only the front row. People don't need to be brought together. That's what horses and buggies are for. I mean, what if what if some of these basic things that we consider necessities now in our lives were never invented? What about the inventor of the steam engine? Put a lot of horses and unemployment. What about the combustion engine, the television, the computer, eyeglasses, gunpowder? Gunpowder changed history. History was shaped by the people who did these kinds of things. It changed the world forever. Besides inventors, what about great influencers? Jacques Cartier, coming to Canada. George Washington, down in the U.S., leading the Revolutionary War. Abraham Lincoln, in his view on slavery. Martin Luther King, in his view on civil rights. Spiritually, Moses, David, the Apostle Paul. What if all of these individuals, or even a few, never rise to their ultimate destiny? What about regular people in our lives? What about us? If we don't just rise up and do sort of what we were intended by God to do, the world is then a different place. And they or we miss opportunities to affect the world for the better, which we know is central to who we are as Christians. What if some of those individuals knew what they were potentially destined for, knew of their own capabilities by God to do great things, yet still didn't choose it, simply didn't care? simply decided to live a different life. Every other priority in life sort of drowned out their gifting and their destiny and what they could have been and what they ultimately were in history. What if they just didn't care? I think we'd all agree that's, that's pretty tragic. It's really sad. That's our story today. I want you to turn to page 18 in the Bible that's near you. Page 18, which is Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, page 18. We're skipping a couple of chapters. I'll fill you in on why in a few moments. Genesis chapter 25, again page 18, beginning in verse 19. So we're moving forward a little bit from Abraham to Isaac. And now to Isaac's sons. Isaac is sort of a a non-factor in Old Testament history. He's almost just a transitionary figure to get from Abraham to Jacob, if you will. Not a lot talked about with Isaac. There's more really about Isaac finding a bride than just about anything else. And I would not advise you to find a bride the way Isaac did. It'd be sort of like going into a Starbucks and saying, the first woman who offers to serve me, that's the one I'm gonna marry. That's kind of like the Isaac finding a bride story. Not recommended. I could preach on the subject, I would not want to have to reflect that view of God's will. All right, so Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padamaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like the hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which means hairy, so he basically was named Harry. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Harry's heel, and so his name was called Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Now, when the boys grew, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau. This is probably one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible because of the damage it did. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. A great sermon on parenting here, which we're not going to do today. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. What use then is the birthright to me? Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Normally, I <clears throat> preach this in conjunction with another story a, few day, uh, a chapter or two later. And today, I'm going to split them up because I'm not going to talk about Jacob today. We're going to talk about Jacob next week. I want to talk about Esau. And the actions Esau took in this situation and the spiritual implications in his life because of it. Just two points and two quick applications. God saw the future of an unqualified Esau and diverted his blessing through another. Now, there's a lot going on here as it relates to the birth of the nation of Israel. So that's a part of this. This is a familiar story, but fascinating as well. I want to catch up on the context because that will really help us understand what I mean by this. God's plan in a post Noah post Tower of Babel world. I remember after Noah there's not a lot of people on the planet, just a small clan. And then you get to populations population spreading. You get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where the nations are dispersed throughout the world. And as that happened, after that happened, sort of God formulates this plan. It's not that he hadn't thought of it before. I don't mean it that way. But God gives us this plan that the best way to reach a dispersed population, human population on the world, is that he would raise up a nation. And that he would bless that nation supernaturally in such significant ways, bless it for obedience, withhold his blessing for disobedience, but bless it when they obeyed him so that they would be elevated on the world stage between three of the major continents on all the major trade routes so that all nations would come to know that he is the true God. So when the prophets talk about the role of Israel in the world, they literally called it a light to the Gentiles. That's what the Jewish people, that's what Israel was intended to be. And from Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament, it's the story of that nation. It's completely Jewish-centric. There to be a light to the nations. So that's Israel. Now we're pre-Israel. Because that's going to come about through Abraham. Abraham's just a guy. He's a special guy but he's just a guy. He's not a nation. So in Genesis 12 through 18, you have these promises to Abraham about how God will make a nation out of him that will eventually be elevated on the world stage. So in these promises, this collection of promises that begin in Genesis 12, Abraham is going to have a son. The son is going to ultimately lead a nation, become a nation, that nation will be a blessing to the whole world. That's going to be Israel, and part of that blessing is the Savior comes through Israel, Jesus Christ. All right. So this son of Abraham's is Isaac. Isaac has been born. Isaac has grown up. Last week, we talked about this sacrifice that Abraham was asked to make of Isaac where he finally trusted God, and God, of course, did not have him follow through. But now the promise of this future nation, the people that will influence the world, has to pass to another because Abraham is old and he's going to die. Isaac is growing up. And now, again, you need the succession of patriarchs until they become a clan that becomes a nation. So now you have Abraham to Isaac and now his sons. Now last week we ended in chapter 22 now Moses the editor of Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy he put this together Moses does some sort of editorial housekeeping for a couple of chapters and again I'm not going to preach on it but I'm just going to tell you what we're missing here Sarah dies and there is a sort of a long uh, explanation of where she's buried. Abraham purchases a special burial plot for her and so on. So there's something about that. A bride is procured for Isaac. Again, that's chapter 23. I would term that chapter how not to pick a wife, but God was in it and used a very unusual circumstance for Isaac to get Rebekah. Abraham remarries after this death of Sarah. He has more children. Then Abraham dies and is buried. So those are sort of uh, Moses housekeeping issues to keep you up with the history of what happened there. Now we move to Isaac and his legacy. Isaac himself is not talked a lot about. He's this sort of transitionary figure in Genesis to get from this God with Abraham story, how God develops faith in Abraham, to how God develops faith in Jacob, really. And how God changes Jacob's character over time. Isaac's sort of just the guy in between. So now Isaac and Rebekah have been married for 20 years, and they still didn't have children. And so Isaac prays for children, and God answered loudly with twins. Rebecca noticed that the normal sibling rivalry that you have with a couple of twins had already begun, and it was inside of her. She prayed to understand why her belly was a war zone. My words, not hers. God gave her great insight at that point into the present and the future. As he said, you're carrying twins, and these twins are going to be two nations or two peoples and in an unusual way in that culture, the older is going to serve the younger. So during delivery, this struggle for superior position in the clan begins to play itself out right away. Children in the Old Testament, and sometimes children even in modernity, depending on the culture, are named after situations, they're named after circumstances, they're named after characteristics. Esau came out of the womb and he was hairy. And so you know what they named him? Harry. That was his name. I'm not being disrespectful. His name was Harry. Just mean it's Esau in Hebrew. Jacob was literally so imagine this. This had to be the midwife or somebody describing this. How did this get in the scriptures? Is there no privacy in this world? Esau is coming out and at the end of Esau is Jacob hanging onto Esau's heel. And that made it into the Bible. That's some pretty intimate insight, eh? And so Jacob is named heel grabber. Or, if you take it sort of a little more metaphorically or symbolically, he who outwits another or trips up another. And he lived up to that. Even in the womb, these boys acted like their character. Both of these boys had some issues. I mean, they both had issues. But God makes a judgment even before they were born that the older would serve the younger, that there would be two nations, but one would be given preference over the other, and it would not be the normal course of culture. Now, how did God do that? Why did God do that? But what happened here? How did God do that? Now, I'm going to give you two choices. And I'm not sure that I can prove either one of these. I think the text would indicate one more than another. But I want to give you two perspectives on why God did this and what happened here. One choice would be God chose Jacob over Esau, irregardless of the story that followed that shows Esau's character. God just chose Jacob over Esau because he can to show that God is a God of grace, he chooses who he wants to, and he's God, and he can do this. And there are reasons people believe that's what's happening here. Another view is God saw into the future Esau's character, and he disqualified Esau from being the leader of the clan that would become Israel. In that case, we would say God can operate outside of time. I do not understand this. The more you try to think about this, the more your brain will hurt what God's omniscience entails, how he can see the future without actually causing all of it to happen. But he operates outside of time. He told Rebecca, the result of his foreknowledge in this case, that the older would serve the younger. Now, I believe in number two here that God operated outside of time, that he saw the future, he saw Esau's character, he made a judgment and said Esau would serve Jacob. Esau will not be the one through whom the blessing passes. Now, I'm not sure how God does this. It's one of my first questions when we get in heaven. If it were simply God's choice that he just preferred Jacob, there would be no need to eviscerate Esau's actions which take place here and elsewhere. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, here's a great example of this. In the great chapter about faith heroes, uh, Esau makes it for his bad example. How do you like that? There's a chapter in the Bible about great behavior and Esau gets there because of bad behavior. It's interesting. That there be no immoral or godless person. Actually, this is the chapter after that, I'm sorry. No immoral or godless person like Esau. See, it doesn't say that in this text. But in Hebrews, it calls him godless. Who who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So that shows that Esau was really never a godly person. He never had a pursuit of God in his life. We see that more here than we do even in the text. But just to be totally transparent, this passage, another passage, is used elsewhere uh, to justify God's right to bless whoever he wants. So here's a a part of Romans that would seem to indicate a a different view. Not only this, but so this is in Romans chapter 9, this is about God's taking the gospel to the Gentile world, not just Israel, and his right to sort of bless whoever he wants, And Jacob and Esau are used as the basis for that. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now I think the word hate there is used sort of hyperbolically to make the point of God's choice. Now, there's a little bit more here. I think there's one more slide here. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So this would seem to indicate God just makes choices at times because he can. He can show mercy on who he wants. So here's what I would say about this passage. I think both are true. And these writers are using them to make different points. But I do believe God saw an unfit Esau coming and made a choice. Why do I believe that's what's going on here mostly? Because Moses included the story and made the editorial comment very strongly Esau despised his birthright. Moses gets it that Esau should have been the guy, the leader of the clan, the one through whom the promise is made. Moses' point is that God saw this unqualified person and withdrew this blessing, which I'm going to talk about now. Esau devalued his natural status, as carry of Abraham's blessing and hope to the world. Now, I chose the word devalued because it reflects Esau's choice. Lentil soup. Now, I'm not sure why it's lentils, but I'm telling you, if you read commentaries about this passage, it's lentil soup or lentil stew. I don't know if the Hebrew words mean lentils or if that's just the only thing they eat in that part of the world that looks red because it's evidently reddish, but it's lentil stew evidently according to just about every commentator on the planet. So I've never been that big a fan of lentils, but I'm going to start today. So he chose lentil soup basically over this family or clan status. And this is such a significant moment that some suggest that this is actually when his name was changed. At this point, the stew is red. Edom means red, so the stew is this reddish dish. And it's possible, and the scriptures seem to indicate that he's not called red until this point, that he's called red because he loves the soup, maybe, but it's also possible it started with this incident where people are looking back and say, sort of remember the time when Esau gave up his whole life, basically? Everything he was intended to inherit and become spiritually for a bowl of red soup? Remember? That's why they called him Red. His name became Edom, possibly at that point, because people were renamed based on circumstances and situations in their life. So I use the word devalued, and I think it's an accurate word. Moses' choice of words was, Esau despised his birthright. It's a fascinating term. It's a harsh word. And I believe Moses used such a word because of Esau's attitude towards the things of God. This story betrays this cold heart that Esau would have. This story's not about lentil stew. It's about walking away from his opportunity to sort of be God's man in this case, the leader of the clan that would become a nation. Think about the opportunity that was before this baby that became this guy who just didn't care about what he was intended to be. So, his attitude earned that term. Esau despised his birthright because it was a legacy missed. Say, why? What was, what was the big deal? What was the birthright? Here's what scholars believe Esau passed on. Now, if the law of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, had been in place at this point, the true Mosaic code, which comes many hundreds of years later. If that had been in place, I'm not sure Esau is giving this away so easily because eventually the birthright entailed two shares of any inheritance. So eventually Esau would have gotten a double portion of a financial inheritance. That wasn't a reality yet necessarily. That's only the money. Here's what Esau gave up. The birthright would make somebody the leader of the family, the leader of the clan. That's kind of a power position. But here's the bigger issue. The birthright in this case made Esau, would have made Esau the natural recipient, the successor of God's promises and God's covenant to Abraham. Now, again, we're New Testament Christians. We don't think about this stuff the way they would have back then. But God had promised to Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. That a nation would come from him. That he would ultimately be, and this comes later, in the lineage of the Savior. He's going to be Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. And I left out a few of the greats. But in the lineage of Jesus, the possessor of Canaan, the promised land. And think about this. The communicator with God as mediator of the future nation that becomes the light to the world. Let me break that down. Who's been receiving dreams and visions and voices from God up until now? Abraham, who's going to become this nation that blesses the world. That sort of mediatorial relationship with God was going to pass on to whoever the son of blessing was going to be. He would be the one that God would talk to about what he's doing in the human family. That's what he walked away from like there's going to be one person to follow Isaac who has that privilege. Esau didn't care about the spiritual. He figured he'd get the material on his own anyway. He was sort of a violent man. He completely missed his place in the spiritual history of the world. Completely missed his place. He should have been the son of promise. We shouldn't be talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as patriarchs that gave us Jesus We should be saying Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And we're not. Because he lived his life not caring about the destiny that God had for him. He completely missed his place in the spiritual history of the world. And he despised his destiny, his birthright. And there is no way that he was not aware of those consequences. Do you know how we know that? Because Jacob understood the consequences. Jacob wanted that place in the world. Jacob did everything he could to manipulate it. We'll be talking about him next week. That man's got some issues. Esau knew what he was giving up. And he didn't care. He knew about the relationship that was available with God from Grandpa Abraham and from his daddy, Isaac. He's a young man now. He's a hunter Could be in his late teens or 20s. I'm not sure how old he is at this point. He didn't care. So Esau came home from a hunt. Jacob is in the kitchen. He's cooking. Cooking channels on the TV, it's hung over the stove. Lentil stew is sort of smelling up the home with spices. Esau's hungry. Jacob took advantage. Esau says, Yeah, I want some of that red stuff. Jacob says, Sure, all of your natural rights for a bowl of stew. I'll take the birthright. You want some stew? It was an absolutely ridiculous bargain. It's a ridiculous, insulting bargain for Jacob to say this. And then Esau says, Well, what good is it to me if I'm dead? I don't care about that stuff. All this God stuff that grandpa talked about and dad talked about. God hasn't appeared to me. I don't care about that. It's yours. Swear it? I swear it. And he gave away the life he was intended to live for a bowl of lentil stew for nothing. Just two applications. One, am I aware, are we aware of the life or the lives that God intends us to live? A lot of times, you know, we become Christians, we kind of think it's an end point, you know? I became a Christian, now I follow Jesus instead of Muhammad or Buddha or somebody else. I I follow Jesus. You know, we had, you know, maybe five world religions that sort of dominate the religious platforms of the world and I've chosen Jesus, sort of, he's my guy. That's my religion. Check the box, and from what I can see in the scriptures, that should make me good for eternity, should end up in the right place. That's a key, so I'm a Christian. And that, we kind of view as an end point. I got the right faith system, now I can relax. But it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning point because God wants to use us and the Bible is full of people just like you and me changing their corners of the world because they recognize that following Jesus is not an end point. It's the point at which we're born into the family of God and God begins to use us in this world. But often, for probably a lot of reasons, we don't have a full sense of our own sort of birthright in Christ and what God wants to do with us God has great potential built into each of our lives because of our natural gifting, our spiritual gifting, both of which come from him, because of his presence and power within us. He wants us to dream the dream of what we can be in his kingdom, by his power, and with his gifting. Esau never dreamed that dream. Esau didn't care. He had other dreams. And none of them involved grandpa's God or daddy's God. He didn't dream the dream of what God could do through him. Do we? Second, do I pursue God as I should? Esau clearly disregarded spiritual matters. Now, we wouldn't know that just from this text. This text says Esau despised his birthright. Looks sort of like a legal, transactional thing. But based on the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, Esau was a pretty carnal, godless guy. And he just disregarded spiritual matters pretty much entirely. He gave away his spiritual destiny for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, none of us are Esau, okay? There's not an application for any of us because you're here in church today. And Esau's not, and he wasn't, all right? Esau skipped that. You're here. None of us are Esau. But what Esau did in great measure, we can do in small measure. It's not unusual for us to sacrifice God's will at times for things we shouldn't, for things that are attractive to us in this world. We don't value sometimes what God values. We're short-sighted. We take lentil stew and give up our best life sometimes. That's not unusual for us. But if Esau was here, I think he'd say, Don't do it. I missed my destiny. As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, make God's issues in your life first, and all the rest of this will be added unto you. I think that's what Esau would say today. Tony Lissardello was Major League Baseball's greatest scout, having signed 52 youngsters, including two Hall of Famers, who would rise through the minor league ranks and eventually play Major League Baseball. This number of signees making it to the big leagues for a scout ranks higher than any other scout. Amazingly, uh, Lucadello's success came despite the fact that he covered the territories of Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. And if you're not from the States, which you're not, that's not exactly the baseball havens of California, Florida, or Texas with the big population bases and year-round weather where you can play baseball all the time, which creates better players and more opportunities to observe them. So he didn't have a great scouting territory. But Lucadello's scouting exploits have been chronicled by Mark Weingartner in Prophet of the Sandlots. Weingardner spent several summers observing Lucadello, a lovable curmudgeon who not only spurned the typical tools of his trade, didn't use a radar gun, didn't use a stopwatch. He roamed the perimeter of baseball fields instead of sitting behind play like most other scouts. So he was looking for other sort of anecdotal information on a player. So how did he do it? According to Lucadella, there are four kinds of scouts. 5% are poor scouts who seldom plan. 5% are pickers who just spot weaknesses in players. 85% are performance scouts who look solely based on how players do against amateur competition. But Lucadella was that rare breed of projector scout. He looked for how coachable a kid was. How a hitch in a swing or a throwing quirk might be corrected. He was able to see years down the road, quote-unquote, to envision under the tutelage of better coaching and against better competition how a player would play. In other words, he used rose-colored glasses looking to see the potential in a young baseball player. God does that like Lucadello never could. God is the greatest talent scout and giver and analyzer of potential in the universe because he's the one who gifts us. He's the one who knows our potential. And he has a desire like no other that we live up to our birthright, that we live up to the potential that he has created in every one of us. The question is, are we pursuing him on this side of heaven so that we can? Don't miss your destiny. From now on. None of us get the perfect destiny. None of us live perfect lives. We get sidetracked. We make choices. It might put us off track a little bit. But the question is, are you pursuing God in your life now to get the best life possible and to fulfill the destiny that God has between now and and when you meet him. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Esau's example. and We're saddened by his example. We're saddened by the life he lived and the fact that he missed out on this great opportunity to be used by you in history in a unique way, to be one of a few that became the leader of that clan, that became a nation, that was to be a light to the world, that gave us our Savior. I pray that in our lives, we would recognize That following you is the most important thing we can do. That the best destiny we can have is to live our lives in a way that pleases you so that we can be used by you in this world to have a changed life and to help change the lives of others. Help us to find that destiny, whatever it is, individually. In Jesus' name, amen.